Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Like we talked about before, but it drives me crazy how people are... Every, everyone wants to get rid of the changing time thing, right? but they all want to stick with daylight savings time. And I'm just like, that's not the real time. Like, Right, yeah, standard time is called standard time for a reason. Right, right. Like they are legitimately confused, and it, like I feel like we're in such the minority thinking it should be that way. I'm like, my analogy is like, I, I really like the weather in October, so let's just let's just keep October going, and you know, like Christmas will be like October 87th or whatever. <laughs> it's just like that doesn't actually change anything, right? If it makes more sense to base the time off of when noon is, and then just if you want to stay out later, just stay out till a later time, or <laughs> right. keep your business open until a later time. Like whatever right. you want to do, right? Just move that around. But yeah, the right. time is like noon is noon because that's when the sun is over. Right. Changing the number to make yourself feel better doesn't change the amount of time in the day or like daylight in the day. So right. change your brain, not reality. Uh, anyway. People, people just don't think it out, though. I don't think people even, it even occurs to people. Like, the midnight one, especially. Like, you're basically getting to where, like, midnight is, like, right after sunset. It's like, no, midnight. <laughs> it's right. halfway between sunset and sunrise. Yeah. We could do like China does and just whatever uh, time zone the capital's in. So, like, basically, it'd be like if everywhere was on Washington, D.C. time. Okay. Which, that's just basically just a giant time zone, in effect. Yeah, but then it's like the sun is coming up at like three o'clock in the morning. Oh, right. If you're on the on the western part, I remember reading some one of my Russians. I don't know if it was a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky book, but they were just kind of casually talking about the guy was like out walking all night, and then around you know four o'clock the sun starts coming up, and I'm like, wait, what the heck? But if you think about a world with uh, one, if they're in Russia and farther north, and two, with no. Uh, Daylight savings time equivalent. Well, yeah, of course you're going to see the sun rising at four in the morning. It was just crazy to hear it yeah. kind of casually mentioned in a in an old book. Yeah, I always, I mean, I haven't ever experienced it, but I think it would be really surreal, like to go to somewhere, you know, north of the Arctic Circle, right. either either during the summer or the winter right. when it's like literally dark all day, right? Or it's like, oh yeah, it's ten thirty p.m. and the sun is like still shining. I always, I always think about that. We see where the sun sets and the sun rises as it basically kind of, it does shift. And that's what makes the longer days is like, if it's a longer day, well, it's because the sun is setting and rising farther north, even for us. So it's really just exaggerating right. that to where it comes almost basically together. And that sunset yeah. is just like, it dips a little bit and then it comes right yep. back up. And then same thing on the opposite. I, I don't know. I just, you think of the planes that we're existing in to make that happen. I, I always think that's kind of yeah. fascinating. And then the same thing, and it, well, and then the opposite in the winter. Right, like, where it barely like rises. Twilight, and, and then it's just dark again. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, but again, like I said, the the model all works out, which again, I don't understand how a flat earther then explains those things. Anyway. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ready to roll? Yes. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after spending four years breaking down world history in chronological order, one movie at a time, we're now on to something a little different. 
Yeah, it's a tournament to determine who is the most interesting person in history, at least the most interesting person that we covered. Um, So that was the only real criteria. They had to be at least mentioned in one of our um, episodes. Broken down into four brackets, the ancient ones, medieval on your ass, enlightened industrialists, and modern times. And this week we are back in the ancient ones bracket. Yeah, it's just so different preparing for going, you know, after doing the modern times with Churchill versus Puyi, and then heading into this week when we got Ashoka the Great versus Ramses the Great. It's just a completely different approach. Like, oh yeah, just the information we have available, and just that you think about the time period they're they're living in. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that too when when researching Ashoka that it was like. Well, you know, we have we don't really know anything about him for sure other than the edicts, but that's basically it. And that's basically where all the information about him comes from too. Uh-huh. So, it's like we have these legends and stuff that are written hundreds of years after he died, and a lot of it is, you know, is probably made up like it's clearly, you know, a, a legend or a myth, but a lot of the stuff that's like historical, I'm putting that in air quotes, historical detail is like, well, this is plausible, so it's probably what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. And yeah, and similar with uh, Ramses. It's like, okay, we have these battles break down, but we don't necessarily know, like, even though he lived so long, we don't necessarily have, like, a good breakdown of phases of his life. We talk about Churchill's Wikipedia page broken down into, like, 13 time periods. It's like, Ramses isn't even broken down into any. It's just like, hey, he was this guy, and here's some battles they did. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, there's more than that, a little more than that, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is, like, it's funny... Going from like a, a Winston Churchill, where it's like on this date at this time, <laughs> this is exactly what he said. Uh, in researching Ashoka, it's like, well, I, maybe sometime around this five-year period, there like might have been a civil war. We're not really sure, but basically, <laughs> there there might have been a civil war, and this is probably who won. <laughs> right, right, yeah, completely different thing. Okay, a quick little. This isn't exactly feedback because okay, it's feedback from myself. <laughs> so. Something that just kind of occurred to me that I thought was worth sharing as far as maybe one of the things that led to me being so fascinated with, you know, all these uh, processions of monarchs and kings and queens. And, you know, I specifically, we always talk about me with my England monarch fetish and then uh, it was the Roman stuff. I mean, not to give my full legal name, but like I am the third, like the Roman numeral right. I, I, I is part of my legal name. And so, uh-huh. like, you, I even think, I even like one of my earliest memories is like, you know, you draw your name in chalk, like on the sidewalk or on the back patio. And I'm learning to put Roman numerals in that as like a three and four year old. I mm-hmm. think there's probably something to that when you then get to like, you know, all these, you know, Henry the Eighth and, you know, right. James the Second and, and the, that I was kind of, you feel like kind of a, kinship i guess maybe to that kind of thing and having the same name as my father and i don't know maybe just like subconsciously maybe there's something there obviously other people are interested interested in this stuff that don't have that but i wonder if subconsciously that was part of of the draw for me and that actually just occurred to me like this week so i thought i'd share (laughs) so uh again we are in the second round this is all obviously super arbitrary. It's just kind of what we think. If we agree, great. If not, we kind of do a little point system voting, which we did actually have to break a tie uh, last week or last time. Yeah. I just bid more to advance Puyi than, than Logan did for Churchill. 
So let's see. So we have a shock of the great versus Ramses the great, and we're having the lower seed go first. So that the higher seed, again, just kind of based on our perceived notoriety, uh, we figured Ramses the great was more known, if nothing else, because he's in all the Ten Commandment movies than a shock of the great that I hadn't heard of until I was researching this whole project in the first place. Right, but is apparently like. I, I feel like that's... That's a Western bias thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah. Th- yeah, he's super famous. Right. If you grew up in India, like, you for sure have heard about him. Oh, and like, even and even all our, all our Western listeners, you've seen symbols that date back to Ashoka's time on the flag of India and the, and the lions and all those kinds of things right. in India. Like, it all goes back to Ashoka. We're just not yeah. aware of that side of it. Like, on, yeah, anyway. Right. So, yeah, uh, go ahead and uh, give us the rundown such as it is for... Ashoka, or am I even saying that right? Ashoka? It's Ashoka or Ashaka. I'm, I think Ashoka, but it, it's funny though. I did notice, well, I, I haven't listened to the uh, episode yet, obviously, but last time I think I was saying Ahsoka. Oh, okay. Well, you see it spelled with an H or without an H sometimes. Like even the, right. the movies without an H. I think the reason that I was doing that subconsciously is because if you flip the H and the S, so you make it A H S O K A. That's the name of Ahsoka Tano from Star Wars. Oh, I think no, that's right. why yeah. I was doing that in my head. <laughs> I, well, I mean, when she, when she kind of came on, well, okay, spoiler alert for the Mandalorian, I wasn't expecting to have to do that in this podcast. Uh, but I'm going to talk, <laughs> talk about a character who shows up halfway through that uh, season or second season. But yeah, when she showed up and they start showing her name, I couldn't help but think like, oh, do they get her name from... Oshaka the Great, and it is just kind of like a pretty subtle spelling difference, and then yeah. throws the pronunciation off as well for me. So yeah. yeah so I, if I, if uh, if you notice that the previous time that we talked about him, that's why it's because I was, I guess, thinking about Star Wars in my mind. But what color was his lightsaber though? Like in uh, in ancient India? Oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't honestly when he, he probably changed like he probably started off with a red one because he was like you know bloodthirsty conqueror guy and then oh good call good call probably switched afterwards yeah okay let's get into it give us give us the, right. give us the, <laughs> give us the breakdown of this gentleman <laughs> yeah so like we were talking about before um, there is a lot of conflicting information in the historical record or the legends and myths about Ashoka uh, it's kind of similar to the Trung sisters honestly. Because there's there's just so much that's written about him from after his life that may be myth or maybe legend, but the big thing that we have from him that is you know concrete, literally etched in stone, are his uh, his edicts, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that's just kind of why there's not as much certainty in a lot of the stuff that I'm saying. You know, it's a lot of oh around this time or this probably happened, this might have happened, stuff like that. So some background on India at the time of his life. We go back to 326 BC. That's when Alexander the Great invaded India or began his invasion of the northern part of India. And uh, his armies actually ended up mutinying because they were so far from home, so exhausted, and they didn't want to have to fight this giant empire, this giant force known as the Nanda Empire that was in the kind of northern part of India. So his armies mutinied. He ended up marching back to Babylon, but his invasion destabilized the northern part of India. So that's when this guy, uh, an Indian guy, comes on the scene named Chandragupta Maurya, and he 
fights a war. He ends the Nanda Empire and starts the Marian Empire, which is like the basically ends up being the largest contiguous empire in Indian history. So after he defeats the Nanda Empire, he also defeats Seleucus, who is one of Alexander the Great's generals who had the empire that kind of butted up to the northern part of India there, kind of around Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then west. So that's the, I think it's called the Seleucan Empire, actually, or the Seleucan area. But he, so he defeats Seleucus um, and makes peace with him. He famously gifts this guy 500 war elephants and possibly married his daughter. That's not known for sure, though. Um, he might have married one of his daughters. Uh, but anyway, so this guy, Chandragupta Maurya, has a son named Bindusara, who then continues the conquering, goes on to conquer the southern part of India as well. So basically the entire subcontinent is now this one Mauryan empire. And then in the late 4th century BC or the early 3rd century BC, we're not again, not really sure, but somewhere around then, Ashoka is born. And he's the middle son of Bindusara. And he wasn't initially kind of thought to be the one who was going to take over the throne. He was the, like I said, he was the middle son, but he was also, his mom wasn't a royal. His mom was a commoner. Um, his older brother's mother was a royal princess. So it was thought that he was probably going to take over after their dad died. Yeah, had the way better claim with the higher birth and older and everything anyway. Yeah, yeah. Right. But as we'll, as we'll see, uh, Ashoka uses what CGP Grey calls bigger army diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he uh, does some governing as a young prince. He governs a couple of different cities in India, He's, or in the Mauryan Empire. He's squashing rebellions, learning, getting educated. He meets and has two children with a woman named Devi, who is from the Shakya clan, which is the same clan as Gautama Buddha. So it's, it's thought that this is probably where he is first exposed to Buddhism. And then in, well, in or around 274 BC, Bindusara dies. And there's was possibly, uh, probably a civil war between Bindus all of Bindusara's sons. But again, Ashoka didn't necessarily have the the best claim to the throne, but he does end up defeating his brothers in this war. So in 270 BC, he's crowned emperor and he starts conquering. He says, I want to keep expanding the kingdom. He wants more money from the tax revenue from the additional lands, but also just has ambition to expand the Mauryan Empire. In or around 262 BC, he fights a war with the Kingdom of Kalinga, which is on the eastern part of India. And they think that it's going to be a kind of quick and easy, you know, we just kind of show up, kick the crap out of them, and then, you know, we'll be done. But it ends up being, they end up being a pretty formidable enemy. And it ends up being like a pretty lengthy, like brutal, super bloody war where over 100,000 people die, 150,000 captured, and that's not even including the people that died, like, post-war from famine and disease. Like, that's just 100,000 dead just on the battlefield. Wow. So, in the aftermath of this war, Ashoka basically becomes a pacifist. He says, this is so horrible, I can't believe that we did this, there's no reason to cause this much suffering, and uh, I'm now basically a pacifist. Not... 
not entirely a pacifist. Like, I, I feel like... But that conquering lust is kind of gone. Right. So he basically, his philosophy is, I'm not going to conquer just for the sake of conquering. If someone else tries to invade us, I will kill them. <laughs> and if someone, you know, tries to, like, rise up and rebel against me, I'm going to put down the rebellion and, like, kill people who rise up against me. But I'm not going to just go out and try and conquer more lands just to conquer more lands. Which is a, a complete 180 from how he was when he first started uh, ruling. And, uh, and maybe you were going to come back to it, but wasn't there a whole thing too with his... And I know this in, is, hits in the movie, but I'm pretty sure this actually happened too. That his, his grandfather did a similar thing as kind of the king before his dad, or the emperor before his dad, basically abdicated and became a giant monk or Jane monk or whatever. That actually happened though, right? Or did you get into that with what his grandpa did oh i didn't i didn't read that much into his into his grandfather oh, okay. just to, mostly just to get the backstory of how the morian empire came okay. to be but no i didn't i didn't know that yeah little little bit of precedent so in this in that his grandpa did a similar thing but his, but oshaka didn't actually abdicate when he turned over a new leaf where i think his grandpa straight up abdicated i know that his grandfather was famously religiously tolerant as was his father bindusara like they were tolerant and they you know had good relations with other countries that they weren't conquered. They, yeah, I don't know anything about him being an actual monk. But this is also when he officially becomes Buddhist. He was probably exposed to the religion and the ideology when he met his wife, because she was from the same clan as Gautama Buddha. But he becomes the first king in history to be Buddhist. But he also pushed religious tolerance. So he was like, you know, this isn't like, oh, this is a religion, this is a state religion, this is what we're all going to do. He's like, I've thought about what my principles and philosophy are. I'm going to be a Buddhist. I think it's awesome, but everyone needs to figure that out for themselves kind of thing, which is like really progressive for that time, honestly. Oh, right. Um, he did, uh, sorry, he did abdicate and become a Jain monk. That's how Bindasar actually took control was Chandragupta. The grandfather did. Yeah, the grandfather did abdicate to become a... Again, I don't know if it's Jain or Jain, that, that that kind of that sect, but yeah, he abdicated hmm. to become a monk. Um, so there's at least something that a young Oshaka would have been uh, aware of, but obviously yeah. didn't start off by kind of following that right. model. In the movie, they do kind of a cool thing, though, too, where his grandfather even like gets rid of his sword as kind of like a gesture of that kind of turning over the new leaf and i think they kind of mirror that with oshaka doing a similar thing like claiming his grandfather's sword but then equally oh, okay. then equally kind of throwing it in obviously that's invention yeah. for the movie but kind of a fun visual uh to go with that yeah it, it, another thing i saw in one of the videos it talked about him um when he was like a teenager as a young prince um one of the first places that he was sent to kind of rule over was this like trade hub so it was a, a place where he would have been exposed to a lot of different cultures and ideas. And they, in the video, they talked about how that probably had influence on him or, you know, it's like he, he went there and like became woke. Like, oh, okay, the way that I've always been taught isn't necessarily the only way. And there's all these other ideas and people are different and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Cra crazy for, you know, 2,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, whenever this was. Okay, so... So he pushes this religious tolerance. This is also when he starts to issue these edicts. Um, so these edicts are, they're carved in stone, either on giant rocks or giant pillars, and they are built all over his kingdom. And there, a lot of them are still around today. So you can find them 
all over the place. They they were written so that people could read them, but they also then sent royal proclaimers to go and read the entire things to the population for the people who were illiterate and couldn't read them. And it's, I think you brought up the last time I did, it's kind of like the third century BC version of Twitter. It's like, these are my exact words as the king sent out to the rest of my right, kingdom. Right, right. Uh, which is like, there's nothing else really like this at the time. Definitely not in India. And then dozens of them are still standing in the original locations, right? Right, yeah. They're all over the place. They're, That's what's it's, crazy. It's, so it, it, all over India, uh, modern day Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, like they're all over the place. And a lot of them have been actually pretty well preserved like you can go and see them and it's it's one of the ways that they are able to have so much detail i i know that us talking about oh well in and around this year like it doesn't seem like it's very detailed but for 2500 years ago it's it's a lot of detail for yeah. uh, someone who lived this long ago yeah and like so just just crazy and they even call like the pillars of osaka or soka or whatever and they're still yeah kind of out yeah it's it's crazy the movie is still on Netflix. It, it's called it's uh, it's Ahsoka without an H, so A S O K A. It's kind of in between, so like it's it's below a seven on IMDb, but the ten critics that reviewed it all liked it on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's technically a hundred percent. Just not a lot of reviews. I did enjoy it, and it's kind of just fun that this uh, conqueror turned good guy Indian warrior thing, because that's you know a Bollywood type movie. There's also song and dance numbers, and it's. Yeah, kind of ridiculous, but also actually really good. And so, if you're at all interested in like Bollywood type stuff, it's worth checking out. Or even if you're not, well, fair, yeah, fair. Check it, check it out <laughs> anyway. It's kind of long, but again, I again, it's you know, give it, a, give it a try. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely different if you're not used to this kind of thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. If you had more to kind of, no, that's here. fine. Okay, so these uh, so these edicts they outline what he called Dhamma. Which is, it's basically like Ashoka's rules for living a good life. And a lot of them get specific, but it's basically like, obey your parents, obey, you know, respect your elders, don't, like, kill poor people, don't be violent. It's, it's basically respect and nonviolence are the big tenets of this, of the, this Dhamma. So he outlines this for his entire kingdom. Despite his pacifism, he did not disband his army. He was a emperor first. So even though he didn't want to just go around and keep conquering, he did see the need to remain strong on the world stage. He still fought against invaders. He still put down rebellions, like I mentioned earlier. But he did not have any more conquests for the rest of his reign, for the rest of his life. Right, that's still a huge shift that he goes from bloodthirsty yeah. conqueror, basically, uh, I, I, bloodthirsty is maybe a little bit of a loaded term if you're going to try to say something like a Genghis Khan, or these just kind of expansionist kind of conquerors to, no, now he's just taking care of his own country and securing it well and right. wor worried more about quality of life of his subjects than his own ego, basically. Right. So it's, it's kind of a huge yeah. turn for, again, 2,500 years ago. Yeah. Instead of going on these conquests, he ended up, he started going on these tours of his kingdom. So he would just basically travel around and would meet commoners, would meet like peasants and poor people, which again, this is super progressive stuff for this time. Right. No, no one else was doing this. Even for a thousand years later, or even for today yeah. sometime in some instances. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. 
So he would go around to the commoners, talk to him about their problems, talk to him about Dhamma, um, and he really wanted to kind of embody that Dhamma in his own actions. He wanted to make sure that everyone was being listened to. He thought of the commoners in his kingdom as more than just people that I get tax revenue from. Like he wanted to actually improve their lives. So he had a bunch of like improved infrastructure projects all over his kingdom um, where they would plant like orchards and stuff along the sides of roads and dig wells. And yeah, just a really, a really interesting person in that regard where he was just more focused on improving the kingdom he already had rather than expanding it just to make it bigger. And then his, in addition to the edicts, the other big mark that he had on history was uh, he sent a bunch of Buddhist monks as missionaries to spread the Buddhist religion to other countries. That's how I got to China, basically, right? Was was China? Oh yeah, China, Cambodia, Vietnam, like Japan. Even you know, then sending them to like you know modern day Russia and sending them to go talk to the Greeks. Like he just wanted to spread, not to convert people, but basically just to spread the word about Buddhism and say like, here's what we're doing. If you think it's great, maybe you can try it too. Oh right, right. Not a huge like. proselytizing effort more just like yeah hey here's what we're doing letting you know <laughs> right and that was uh so successful that if you go to india today it's not buddhist anymore right Actually, most of the uh right it's india hindi. is hindu hindu, hindu yeah. but like buddhism is still the fourth largest religion in the world and it's like the main religion in most of southeast asia right going back to osaka's sp- spreading of it 2500 right. years ago yeah yeah. Crazy. And that's that's why it's still around today is because he sent those missionaries out, those monks. Right. Otherwise, it might have died out when Hinduism kind of was... Well, Chris, Hinduism, I think, existed before, too, but it... it yeah, and it's... It, there is, like, a... It was just stronger in India than Buddhism, ultimately. Yeah, and, there, and there's, like, an interesting... Uh, Hinduism is interesting because it's kind of... It's less dogmatic. Yeah, and it's also kind of like a plug-and-play religion. Right. I mean, I don't really know that much about it. Maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but they kind of absorbed a lot of the Buddhist teachings or ideas into Hinduism. So it's kind of still around if you, if you think about it in that way. But yeah, Buddhism is still, it's the number four religion in the world. Yeah, so huge uh, impact on India, huge impact on Buddhism, and uh, just an overall super interesting guy. I did like uh, this quote from H.G. Wells, which I saw in one of the videos that I watched. And is also on the uh, the Wikipedia page. Um, it's a quote from H.G. Wells. I guess he wrote a history book. Yeah, he. I actually have them. I haven't read them, but I, I have like a couple volume world history by H.G. Wells. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the part of this book where he's talking about Ashoka, he said, amidst the tens of thousands of names of monarchs that crowd the columns of history, their majesties and graciousnesses and serenities and royal highnesses and the like, the name of Ashoka shines and shines almost alone a star. Oh, wow. And that's H.G. Wells. Wow. Uh, you got me. Th- uh, when, we, uh, when we finish recording here, I'll have to go and uh, grab that. Go see, find it. see if I can, fi- <laughs> I, can fi- I can find that exact passage. Because <laughs> uh, I, I bought those books, but I never actually cracked them open. Uh, just, I was kind of fascinated that H.G. Wells was also a, histo- a historian. Probably easy to write a history book when you can just get into your time machine. Um, and just go around to history like he, you know, probably pulled like like a Bill and Ted and like went back and talked to Ashoka, you know, after he got done fighting Jack the Ripper and 
San Francisco. Right, and getting married and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. He's a busy, busy guy, H.G. Wells, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> my, my other thought was, so we see a lot of this all over the world, all through history, is these kind of conquering warlords that take over lots of territory, whether it's, you know, Ashoka or Genghis Khan or even like a Napoleon and then a Hitler, this kind of conquering where it's just kind of the goal, no real reason. I guess you're kind of acquiring more resources, but it seems like at some point it's ultimately about your ego. And yeah. the thought that just occurred to me when we see, frankly, like a Jeff Bezos, who, even though he's worth well over a hundred billion now, doesn't want his workers at his warehouses to unionize, and it's just like, are you? What are you afraid? Afraid is going to happen to you. Like I don't, I don't understand why. Why might not be the best employer in the country? I mean, all I thought is almost like since he can't conquer territory nowadays, is the idea that yeah, I just oh, have to, like it's the same mentality. Yeah, it's like I have to get that number. That number has to get as high as possible, and I have to do everything as possible to get that number the highest it can be and win. I must win and conquer right. and conquer more, and that number is absolutely meaningless. That has no the difference between five billion and eight hundred billion is essentially meaningless to his life but it's like there's this obsession to keep it growing and i wonder if that's similar to these conquerors from you know the past i don't know it just kind of a just occurred to me as you were talking about it but yeah i just don't see any other reason for them not to be i mean you get something like bill gates is kind of there's some of those billionaires have signed on to the whole give everything away before they die or give give most away to charity and that seems more reasonable to me because again your money is to well help you in your life i don't know i mean Bill Gates has still done some greedy shit. I'm not saying he hasn't, but he's been more he's, he's he's more philanthropic than Bezos it seems. Yeah, but I mean that's not that's not a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Sorry, I'm a little more of a uh, Gates fan with all the, you know, the stuff he's done for I mean, he's saved lives over in Africa with all the disease right. stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 for sure. And he, I mean, yes, the the philanthropic stuff is good, but there is I mean there's room for improvement. He's still definitely trying to keep that number high. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to Ashoka's uh, opponent today, Ramses II of Egypt, or Ramses the Great, who we saw really, really early in this project, even earlier than Ashoka. I watched the animated version of the Ten Commandments, The Prince of Egypt, where he is kind of buddies with Moses, and right off the bat... That's not accurate. It's just kind of who it seems like it was just who Cecil B. DeMille chose back when he did his first version of Ten Commandments. Then he did a remake of his own Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And then everybody in Hollywood just seems to keep using Ramses as the Pharaoh in the Bible, but there's really no evidence of it. And there's, I think they've even kind of narrowed it down to where, oh, if, if, if it was, pro- it was probably, it was probably this other Pharaoh. They, they think, I forget his name, but there's no, I was going to say, so there, I was going to ask, there's no, you're saying there's no evidence of Ramses being the Pharaoh, not that there's no evidence of like the Israelite captivity in Egypt. Uh, well, I, I honestly, I didn't deep dive into that. So, so no, there's not, there's no Egyptian records of it, but it's, it's so, gotcha. as I even kind of said back in my, this is really was like the second episode of this whole podcast. I think I said, quote, that one time some slaves left wouldn't have been a yeah. big deal for the Egyptians. And so I'll give the Jewish people some the credit in that, hey, they had these folk tales that had been passed down generation to generation. And if those said they were in slaves in Egypt at one point, 
sure, why not? I mean, it, it, right. it doesn't mean it would would have made the, it, but it didn't make the Egyptian records. So, so other other than that, though, I mean, other than just kind of the seemingly arbitrary choice to make him in our pop culture the Pharaoh from the Bible, there's no other supporting evidence to show that oh no right yeah because i think the t- the timelines don't quite match up i think if you kind of again moses is more of a legendary if you're looking at everything from a historical perspective uh moses is a legendary figure or even a mythical figure he's uh, there's not like mm-hmm. any kind of historical evidence for moses other than these tales that were passed down which you know doesn't make him any more historically accurate than say you know an atlantis or something but Right. But if, if you're going to try to figure out when he might have existed, it, I think it must maybe overlap a little bit with Ramses, but on the wrong end where they definitely wouldn't have been like raised together or anything like that. So that, that's all kind of apocryphal. Yeah. And again, not to make this the Moses episode, but even like there's elements of Moses's story that were like straight up, you know, kind of ripped off from other leaders of the Middle East at the time. And I think it was... Oh, like, really? I, I forget. I, I forget. I get them confused if it's... There was a... Uh, it was either Cyrus the Great or or the Sargon. I think no, I think it's Sargon. There's like some like Sargon the Great way back in the day, and he was like put in a basket and sent down the river when he was a little baby and stuff. Like, and that's even more historically oh, recorded. Okay. Versus, and then they're like, oh, we'll just make that happen to Moses because that's a good story. Anyway, <laughs> Ramses. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this is going to be really different because. <sighs> I just think of how I did Churchill last time, and it's just like the soul beat by beat in his life, and it's like I can't, I just can't do that for Ramses, or even to the extent that you deal with Ashoka. It's like I, I can't really do that, but I still think we can make a strong case for him being one of the most interesting people in history when you just look at who he was and what he represented, and it's almost less yeah. about the plot points of his life and more about just kind of putting ourselves in the world of Ramses. But before I dive into that. This is peripherally related. Something I actually ran across on YouTube about a oh a month or two ago, and I've been wanting to share with you, but I was waiting specifically to, for the Ramses episode to go into it. Um, okay. <laughs> so it ties into when we talked about Cleopatra, uh, and when I, and I and we did my original episode on Cleopatra and talked about how she was inbred. I pull up the example that I actually kind of came up with, just doing the math of how we're all a little inbred. So. Again, the example that I've always used, you just do the whole, your number of ancestors as you go back each generation is just two to the X power, not to make this a math episode, but in that you have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and it's just two to the whatever power a generation back. So 30 generations would be two to the 30th power ancestors. (laughs) Everybody with me so far? So if you go back 30 generations, that's 2 to the 30th power, which is like a billion. So if you go back 30 generations, your number of unique ancestors at the top of that family tree going down to you would be a billion people. Well, 30 generations, if you're going 20 to 30 years, is 600 to 900 years ago. But the world population didn't reach a billion until like 100 years ago. So I was just using that as an example to be like, oh, hey, we're all we're all inbred because those billion ancestors are all the same people. Right. So that well, that one person is in like eight spots on your on your family tree and then this other person is on 12 spots and it's you still have that family tree if you were to be able to fill it but you're filling it with mm. a lot of repeated names just right. as a mathematical inevitability. Anyway, and so that's kind of just the theory I had but I never really heard anybody talk about it in detail. 
until I ran across a YouTube video a few weeks ago. They kind of broke it down even more, and they were even citing some studies that had kind of done a deeper dive into this. So what they did, they went back even a little further to 40 generations and made it about a, they were even saying conservatively just like, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 years ago, two to the 40th is over a trillion people. And oh, right. And, and, and a thousand years ago, the world, I'm pretty sure they said the world population at that, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 years ago was like 250 million. So when there was only 250 million people on the planet, you would have to have had a trillion unique ancestors. And so it talked about how, yes, obviously, even more to the point of us being all related, all quote unquote inbred. And, and again, that's where it right. gets kind of a bad, a bad, uh, I don't, I don't want to say inbred kids or incest gets a bad rap. What I'm saying is we're all, you, you don't have unique ancestors. I remember my, my dad would kind of get like kind of blown away. Like, well, you kids have twice as many ancestors as your mom and me. And then, oh, then, then when my brother had his daughter, it's like, well, then she's got twice as many. You can see like my dad was kind of like trying to process this. Like this doesn't really seem to add up like intuitively. Yeah. That just each generation just doubles the number of unique ancestors. Like, nope, it's all kinds of overlapped. Yep. And you've talked about before, you know, with the Matilda thing, where it's kind of like the hourglass, where it's like the tons mm-hmm. of ancestors, and it kind of filters through, and then the tons of descendants. Yeah. Anyway, so this whole video and this theory breaks down on top of what everything we just said, or rather, what everything I just said kind of leads to is let's look at say just Northern Europe. 1200 years ago in the time of Charlemagne. Charlemagne was crowned or crowned himself, you know, in 800 CE as the Holy Roman Empire emperor and all that 1200 years ago. So, because of how all this math works out, the theory goes and the evidence evidence I mean you can't ever prove this stuff, but the evidence mathematically and, you know, uh, archaeologically and everything seems to kind of match. So, not only are we all kind of related, specifically everyone say in northern Europe that was alive in the year 800, mm-hmm. any of them that have living descendants today is every person of Northern European descent. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not only are we descended, like almost certainly from Charlemagne, we are descendant from every person alive in Northern Europe in 800 CE. Right. Whose line didn't die out. If they have yeah. any, if they have any descendants alive today, it's every person of Northern European descent alive today. Yeah. So they call it like the right. common ancestor theory. That's like, oh, all us people of Northern European descent are related to everyone in Northern Europe from 800, the year 800. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of crazy. So the whole reason I'm bringing this up today, and you might be able to see where <laughs> this is going, that's just 1,200 years ago. If you go right. back. 3,300 years ago, and you follow yeah. this back, where so you're at a trillion ancestors that you would need in the year 800. Let's go back to 1300 BC. Right. And you look at a Ramses II, a pharaoh of Egypt, who had 150 children. Right. So it's possible, nay, probable that everyone on Earth today is descended from Ramses II. <laughs> Just because of how the math works out. Right. It's almost a mathematical yeah. inevitability that we right. are all descended from Ramses the Great. Grandpa. I'm talking about Grandpa. Gauntlet thrown <laughs> down. 
<laughs> they, they basically said the only exception would be a really insular like Pacific Island tribe that was already kind of isolated before. And then, right. but even then, it only takes one. That's the thing they talk right. about. It, it, they use the whole six degrees of separation argument where. Mm-hmm. It's not about everybody knowing everybody. It's like, no, it's about everybody knows that one super connected person. So it just right. takes one well, to kind of go around. It's yeah. like the same thing where people are like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, we're we're all, you know, everyone has like a how much percentage of Genghis Khan DNA. And it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, it is because of like the raping and pillaging, but also just because he had so many descendants right. so long right. ago. right. And he's almost maybe close enough that so like that's why it's less so because it, it does t- it does take a while for this to happen and him being right. only only like eight hundred years ago basically just means he kind of need more time and it basically just kind of depends on the pocket so they actually say it is only about eight hundred years if you are looking at specifically northern Europe mm-hmm. the Charlemagne example was actually maybe even all of European descent so north so <laughs> I mean I'm kind of talking this you're using this to talk uh, up the case for Ramses the second but. There's actually a probably better than fifty fifty chance that you and I are descended from Empress Matilda. Wait, what? Because she was she was about eight hundred years ago in Northern Europe, so it's the same argument. Right. So you don't have to go as far back when you're just going like if you're looking at specifically Northern Europe, it only takes about eight hundred years to get this common ancestor thing. Meaning we were we were right. descended from everybody that was alive at her time in Northern Europe, probably. Oh, uh, okay. It's all but, it, but it's all lesser. So then you could go. Same thing. Like we're actually probably descended from Muhammad, also. Like because he was so long ago, right? Like it's just kind of right. crazy how this all kind of works out, and just and, and then it takes less time. So like I said too, if you were to go, they name like some Indian emperor would be all of the all of the modern Indians because it was only eight hundred years ago. So like the, it, mm-hmm. it takes over enough time, it's, it gets everybody. But if you look at insular pockets, it doesn't take near as long to get that common ancestor threshold where you kind of hit that number. Huh. Anyway, I thought that was kind of fascinating. And then what it actually ties into too is so my most of my family's done the uh, has done the twenty three and Me thing. Yeah, twenty three. Have you not done that? I had, no, I have. And so, oh, okay. So uh, you look at the they have the different Y chromosomes that kind of go back. You know, basically it's just your dad's your dad. You know, all the basically if you go the male lines all the way up, that Y chromosome stays relatively unchanged minus mutations and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So even though my genealogy is all Northern European. My Y chromosome goes back to the Middle East. It's like, well, how is that possible? Right, because you go back really, 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 really far and follow my dad's 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 dad back 1,500, 2,000 years. The male-male line goes back to the Middle East. So what I was joking with with my dad just this week was like, oh, there's a non-zero possibility that we are the male, 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 male descendants from Ramsey II. Right. Because our Y our like, chromosome... But also, yeah. so is, like, everyone else Oh, no, right, 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 right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alone, but right. I, did, I do think it was neat, though, that being a complete, you know, Northern European... Uh, oh, mud's probably an offensive word, but, you know, being a hybrid of all these Northern European sure. countries, my Y chromosome is from the Middle East. I'm like, I don't know, yeah. this is kind of, that's just kind of neat if you think about how far back humanity goes and, and all those kinds of things. That So basically, yeah, the people who share my Y chromosome, most of them are actually in the Middle East versus even though all my ancestors that you can really trace are Northern European. I don't know. We're all related. That, it's kind of crazy. Just, is it just because that's where like, that's where human civilization started? Because I think even on my 23andMe, there was like, a, it was like a 0.03% that was like, west african or something like that 
No, you're right. So I yeah, wonder if it's just if like that's just because because of the Y chromosome you can trace it back so far, and also like that's where civilization started. That like everyone alive has that has that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But if you go back far enough, I mean, let's say, and again, I'm definitely not an expert when you, we're doing kind of a deep dive on this kind of stuff. But I think it is also you do get those mutations over time. Obviously, they're not all identical. They're not all just the Ramses the second one or whatever. But at some point, though, if you did break and you, if, if to say the male male line broke and you're going to then a daughter and then the son of her, you go to 2,000 years ago. Well, it's still going to be a Y chromosome that's traced to you know a barbarian tribe in southern norway or something oh right okay yeah. so the fact that mine does get at some point over to uh without that break is anyway we can move on <laughs> <laughs> but uh i just i, I just kind of love the idea because I, I you know i'd always talk about being jealous that you know the the monarchy in england today can trace back to all these people it's like yeah well yeah we just can't draw the line we probably all have it too they can just draw the line so there's the same yeah. thing too. It's like, hey, we might be one millionth or you know three hundred millionth in line for the English throne, but no, those records right. are all gone. But it's actually legitimately possible if someone was able to keep track of everything. Yeah, I, I do think that is that is a really cool thing. This is getting so far off topic, but that is a really cool <laughs> thing about about the you know the British royal family specifically is that not only do they have the line, but like they have documents and records and stories about every right, single person right. in that line and i just i wish i had that i think that'd be really cool no exactly the docu- <laughs> documentation itself is neat and then, and uh, and the last thing i'll mention from the video is it because it, it, it does sound kind of counterintuitive that we could be descended from empress matilda but basically the idea is that you can go from royal to peasant surprisingly quick like you could be mm-hmm. the great great grandson of a king but you're just you know the local blacksmith's son because of either yeah. not just even the, the obvious ones with third sons of third sons of third daughters getting guys kind of married off to whoever. Well, then obviously then we take into account all the bastards that they had. Right. It's like, I mean, Henry II has the, I mean, shoot, even in the movie Beckett, he's, you know, rolling around in the hay, I think literally, with, you know, some peasant girl. Well, if he impregnated her, it's not like that kid is going to have any kind of notoriety. And then all of a sudden we're right. descended from that kid. And yeah, yeah so... Anyway, yeah. Well, it's like when we were talking about uh, talking about Edward II. It's like, oh, he he sired. I think I said in the episode he sired children with other women. I don't know any right, any, right, like, what their names are or or what the kids' names were or what happened to them. Right, they don't have Wikipedia pages. So yeah, it definitely stands a reason that then that kid would go on to have other kids and other and right, yeah, you know, right. two or three generations. Maybe they don't even know that they're like, exactly. descended from Edward II. But yeah, and 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 when you just look at the numbers that everybody everybody was related to everybody at that time, or yeah, anyway, yeah, it's crazy. So. Um, with Ramsey, <laughs> with Ramsey's second, but yeah, I I do think this is part of his story in the sense that he is just kind of he's mystique is kind of his bread and butter, and mm-hmm. I always think too we talk about how arbitrary society is, or like there's certain things we do today that go back to Napoleon, or just just you just think about the the normal ho hum of society, and it's all kind of arbitrary, and you can see obviously we do see different cultures throughout the world, but you can almost hit reset, and what would humans come up with, and Ancient Egypt is one of these kind of oldest known civilizations in the world. It really does just kind of feel like a whole other planet. Like it just doesn't, I mean, it's just crazy what life would have been like back then. And 
like I wanted to go into it's we just kind of set the stage for the world that Ramses II lived in. I think it's just it's worth taking some time to kind of get our heads around it. So how how long ago was this? I, I don't know. Did you say? Yeah. Well, yeah. So here's how, here's how I was going to break it down. So okay. I, I'm going to I'm going to stair step us backward. Gotcha. So a thousand years ago is when Leif Erikson died. William the Conqueror wasn't even born yet. That was a thousand years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was still alive. He would have been like 24, 25 years old, probably just starting preaching and all that kind of thing. So that was 2,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, Ramses II had been dead for two centuries. <laughs> it's just hard to think about like how long ago uh, this was. But, but yeah. of course, even then, so that's, you can see, like, oh, he was so long ago. But then you can make him seem recent when you go, oh, but 5,000 years ago was when you had the first documented pharaohs being in charge of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then they've even found, you know, stone tools in like the Nile region going back a million years ago. Wait, what? No, but it was like basically like people that are even pre-homo sapien you know, had tools. I was going to say, were there even humans on the earth at that time? Not homo sapiens, but like still other uh, antecedents to uh gotcha that were doing stone tools and stuff and they've even found there's remnants of structures in this part of the world from a hundred thousand years ago and obviously we've talked about you know agriculture kind of starting 10 to fifteen thousand years ago so they think that as i even wrote down about about twelve thousand five hundred years ago we were we humans around the nile region were harvesting wild grain and there's like sickles you know sickle blades and stuff found from this time twelve thousand years ago so when we talk about yeah. ramsey being 3300 years ago oh that's just the other day right <laughs> and what and when were the when did the pyramids come into play there because we talked about in the cleopatra episode how like the pyramids had already been there for thousands of years right they're about 4500 years ago so you had the first pharaohs about okay. 5000 years ago and then about 500 years after the pharaohs kind of started was when you got the pyramids at Giza and all that. But yeah, so then when Ramsey is born around 1303 BCE, yeah, those pyramids are, you know, like 1,200 years old already. Right, which is crazy. That's right. so crazy. To, like that, That's Charlemagne ago. That's Charlemagne ago to us. Right, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Like, we're, we're talking about, like, still, still, like, woolly mammoths on the earth at the time that the pyramids are being built. Oh, that's crazy. And I'm not familiar enough with that, but I think you're right. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, all those kind of giant mammals were still in the process of dying out, which is, yeah, just kind of insane. So the world at the time. So why Egypt and the Nile and everything was so special. And we talked about kind of history versus prehistoric. The reason we know all this stuff, the Egyptians just had some of the best records. So we have records of that first pharaoh in like 3100 BC, which is why we kind of ha- know these things. Before that, we don't have the written records. It's all just kind of prehistoric. Right. But the reason the Nile was so special was it was just predictable and easy to kind of develop agriculture. And so when we see it, you know, you see it in Europe as you get uh, farming methods get better and the Industrial Revolution, all those kinds of things, basically the fewer the smaller percentage of your population you need to make food or provide food for everyone, the more mm-hmm. time you have for other things. And so the Nile was just kind of this perfect place for creating these grain surpluses with the predictable Nile flooding and how they were able to mm-hmm. irrigate. And it was, apparently it was just super easy. And right. Well, and with the, yeah, with the, with the Nile flooding and then going back and then, you know, and the soil around it then becomes so fertile that 
you probably can't help but start growing crops because you right, just throw the right. seed down and it starts growing. Yeah. So right. So food surpluses became a thing which allowed for their society to blossom. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, you guys don't need to be farming. Go build me a pyramid. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's obviously a simplified version, but it was kind of that. So, uh, yeah, so then they have their leaders, just like all the regions, all the world have their leaders. And what I think, too, is for us today, you think of, oh, ancient Egypt pyramids and the the sand and the desert. And so in your mind, when you think Egypt, you just kind of think that, tanned kind of goldish brown color and that that was everything and even like the stuff you know we see the you know hieroglyphics and everything today but we forget that everything was super colorful the clothes they mm-hmm. wore and when they were decorating all these things all these statues that are alive today they were in full color and so there's actually a super super colorful world this is maybe going off track but isn't that the same thing with like ancient rome where yeah, we think of yeah. like oh the all the like the the pure white statue right. and like the white pillars and everything. But like at the time, those they were, were all painted, painted too. Full yeah. Color. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Greeks and Rome, you see as white, but those were all painted. Egypt is kind of more that yellow gold. Right. When you think of the different kind of stones that they used and the, of course the desert itself. But yeah, you look at all the interpretations today and now it's like, you know, it's Ramsey's riding his chariot in the battle and he's just wearing like eight different colors and everything is just so bold and big. And then yeah. so culturally, you just think, too, of this is, you know, one of the cultures that we talk about, divine right of kings in Europe. Well, obviously, they had it back then. So just if you're Ramses II, you know, you're born the son of the pharaoh or I don't know if his dad was actually pharaoh at the time he was born. But anyway, you're, you're born in this line of pharaohs. And the idea that you're of the gods and above society, but also the caretaker of society, it's like they believed all this stuff very literally. Right. And it, it's different from like divine right of kings too though because they like almost like they are the gods yeah yeah right i was gonna say because like a king of you know a, an old school king of england would say oh well i'm like i'm put in this position by god whereas they almost saw themselves as deities themselves in in egypt yeah maybe yeah. not necessarily like i'm an actual god but like i'm not a, i'm not just a human like i'm removed yeah it is a little tricky and there's actually so What's kind of interesting, too, is Ramses and his father and grandfather, they were kind of following closely on the heels of a kind of crazy pharaoh called uh, Akhenaten, who basically, tra- after you know these centuries of the development of the Egyptian mythology that you could go, I mean, I didn't do a deep dive on all that, but there's this established Egyptian mythology, and it did kind of morph over time with, you know, gods like Amun and Ra becoming combined into Amun-Ra and those kinds of things are relatively normal but this Akhenaten guy basically tried to hit reset and be like yeah all that stuff is gone and like I'm the new god and we're going to reestablish all of Egyptian mythology on me and he just kind of blew everything up and was kind of like even basically not Caligula but definitely a kind of a megalomaniacal kind of hit reset on I'm all that matters kind of uh, pharaoh and also like their clout in the region kind of fell and they were becoming becoming a lesser power in the region because this guy was doing all his own crazy stuff. And again, I could go into a lot more detail on that, but I didn't really uh, research at all. Anyway, Ramsey's uh, grandfather, Ramsey the first, and then his dad, Seti the first, were kind of bringing Egypt out of that kind of crazy spell and reestablishing them as a power in the region. 
re-expanding their borders, reforming the military, and just kind of making them a lot stronger and a bigger player again in the area. And so Ramsey's even kind of like grew up. They talked about like he's like 10 years old. He's going with his father to witness these battles. And of course, then he in his late teens, he's taking command of some of his father's armies. Again, kind of like the stuff I guess you would have seen in Ten Commandments or yeah. Prince of Egypt, where right. they are kind of doing this. And he's very much the warrior prince. But again, I think we're just so used to our medieval model of that, that it's just kind of crazy to think, you know, back when it's all the chariots and spears and archers and all throughout the desert of the Middle East. And of course, again, the Fertile Crescent, we always think about the Middle East as being this desert. Well, the Fertile Crescent was called that for a reason, because it was this right. perfect crescent of farmland kind of going from yeah. the Mediterranean and the, is it what, the Dead Sea down there? And then over around Saudi Arabia to the other side and, you know, and through Iraq to the Persian Gulf or whatever. So you kind of have this, again, fertile crescent of great land for farming that we want to control. Right. There's a reason that civilization started there. <laughs> right, right. Because you, <laughs> you can grow stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so a lot of it is just kind of like just being successful with the battle. So the few things that are worth kind of bringing up here are, one, him dealing with these pirates in the Mediterranean kind of early on. And they were just kind of causing fits all throughout the eastern part of the Mediterranean into Egypt, but also into the you know, what is now Syria and up into Turkey. And so the pirates have been uh, attacking ships full of goods that were headed to Egypt. Obviously, there's all kinds of trade still going on in the Mediterranean back back in these days. And the pirates were, you know, basically raiding all the ships heading for Egypt. And Ramsey's basically just ended up ambushing them. So we could just kind of hit his boats kind of along the way where they knew the pirates would be coming. And Mm -hmm. as the pirates come by, they just uh, swoop in and, and capture all the pirates. And then he actually recruited all of those pirates into like his personal bodyguard. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So like his, his actual like body men would be all these former pirates that he captured and paid well enough. They're like, okay, fine. We'll work for you now. Yeah. So the kind of the, the most prominent battle, again, they're kind of fighting all these battles as they're, him and his father were regaining some of these territories. One of their biggest rivals was the, the Hittites. And there was this land in between with the city of Kadesh and everything that was kind of a big back and forth area. And it sounds like for no other reason than it was the border. So it wasn't like it was particularly special or strategic, but it was just the area where their territories met. Mm-hmm. In like that Alsace Lorraine and France and Germany, they would kind of go back and forth with who controlled that little area. Right. Or like a Crimea when you see Russia taking that. So just kind of one of those back and forth areas. So and so one of the best documented ancient battles is the Battle of Kadesh, where basically it's the Egyptians versus the Hittites with Ramses as Pharaoh also in the battle. So again, you, know, right. you see, even we'll talk about Henry VII next week being in battle as this, you know, want to be king. This is way before that. And so, of course, he's out there on the chariot himself because, you know, you know he's, he's got to be. He's, he's the Pharaoh. Yeah. Is that common at this time? Like yeah, to... yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, th- okay. I, I, I you could definitely see someone maybe like that Akhenaten guy. And again, I don't know the details, but if someone was maybe a little more entitled or wanted, thought themselves a little more special, but I, I think it was just kind of expected and part of the glory and you know and showing yourself as yeah. you know being and you kind of think you're above anyway. So I think you just kind of see right. yourself as blessed to be able to do these things. That does seem common, at least uh, among the people like in this bracket that we talk about being yeah. like great conquerors of warriors, like an Alexander the Great or Ashoka or. Ramses, Napoleon, like they're all great strategists, but also like fighting in the battles themselves. How on Napoleon, 
Was he a front lines guy though? I always picture him no, on a horse in the back directing. I don't directing. think when he was in when he was the emperor, he wasn't. But when he first started out, that's oh, how he yeah. got his okay, his, true, uh, true guys to love him so much is because he was like, that's true. yeah, I'm an officer, but also I like really like war, and so right. I'm gonna come fight the war with you. And Churchill too, right, 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 because he and he was even like uh, Napoleon was wounded, like in his okay, the, you know, some of the battles that he was fighting in. So no, it does, it does, it does help make you popular with your with your troops for sure. Yeah. So yeah, the Battle of Kadesh is like the oldest battle for which we actually know like the tactics that were used in the battle. Like here's the breakdown of how the battle kind of played out. How is that? Is it written somewhere? Was there like, a, is it like a mural type of deal or how do they? Yeah, yeah. It's, act- it's actually this pretty prominent uh, mural where it even kind of shows like a giant Ramses on the chariot as they're kind of like swooping in against the Hittites and there's all the hieroglyphics in there. It's actually, yeah, super spelled out. And obviously that's the Egyptian side of it, but I think there might even be Hittite records as well. That So anyway, largest chariot battle in world history. At and- time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> you got me with that one. You got me with that one. True, true. We got some work to do. We got some work to do. First step is build chariots. Okay. So over 5,000 chariots. I mean, think about these old battles. It's easy to kind of think about. These numbers just become statistics. It's like the whole idea that, you know, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. Right. It's almost kind of the same thing, too, with 5,000 chariots. Well, what does that even mean? But just think about 5,000 <laughs> chariots. Like, that's an insane number. What else that was cool, though, is the Egyptian and the Hittite chariots were very, very different. So Egypt went for... The speed. Their chariots were less reinforced. They were faster. They were lighter. And they had, you know, kind of, so you'd have one guy who was in charge of, you know, driving. He he dealt mm-hmm. with the horses. Well, the other guy had spears and arrows and stuff and was, was the attacker. Right. Versus the Hittites, they had slower, beefier, tankier chariots. Right, more armor. Even if you're, if you're a gamer, basically the Egyptians were DPS chariots and the Hittites <laughs> had tank chariots. <laughs> the Hittites actually have like three people in there, so they'd have the so the one driver, but then actually two warriors on, on the chariot on the back, mm-hmm. and it kind of just depended on what the matchup was. So the Hittite chariots would destroy infantry, like they would just right. run through you; you couldn't do anything about it. But right. then the Egyptian faster chariots destroyed the Hittite tankier chariots because of their mobility, right? Because they could, it was like a they hit and run tactics. They could yeah. hit him and get away, and then come back and hit him again and get away. And just the mobility. I mean, just, you right. just you're still trying to turn around, and they've already right, flanked yeah. you and killed you. Like right. so, yeah. So they they would plow through the Egyptian infantry and and kind of did early on. But then you know Ramses kind of comes around and flanks back with his line of chariots and kind of drive the Hittites back. And then actually, what's kind of funny is so the Egyptians win the Battle of Kadesh. But then don't actually bother claiming the city of Kadesh. They just kind of leave. <laughs> and then so the Hittites are like, we won the battle. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, and then after this, you do get the world's oldest recorded peace treaty, which we've talked about before. Yeah. And they're, they're, you can even go see like the remnants of that. It's kind of neat. They have this like what's left. It's not the whole whole thing isn't still around, but you can see like a good chunk of this tablet and they have it you know, on this like plastic display to kind of show what the size of the full tablet probably would have been. But it is not just the oldest known peace treaty in world history, but like the fact that it's still around and you can go look at the oldest peace treaty in world history as on this stone tablet. And then so in general, though, Ramses is, we've talked about before, 
the pharaoh. If you are picturing a Egyptian pharaoh in your head, you are picturing Ramses II. I actually even did pull up. I went to the British Museum 10 years ago, and sure enough, I had, you know, kind of not really just kind of taking pictures of everything. Yep, here I have a picture of the statue of Ramses the Great that I took in the British Museum and just tons and tons of building projects. And it was, it was, it's kind of considered the golden age for Egyptian pharaohs and just the quality of life for the people was the highest. It was basically the peak. So like they had kind of recovered from a little, you know, recent troubles. And then after Ramses, it's kind of this long, slow decline. And this is the peak of the Egyptian pharaoh itself. And then also just Egypt, as far as just life in Egypt was awesome. It was probably the best place in the world to live at this time. And Mm -hmm. it was just, it was just the ultimate peak. And he lives so long that he becomes just synonymous with the pharaoh even then. Like he lived like 90 years old. So like basically odds are by the time he dies, everyone in Egypt He's the only pharaoh they'd ever known. Yeah. And well, yeah, cuz like peasants aren't living that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh <laughs> once a pharaoh hit 30 years, they would do a special celebration called like the Sed Festival, where just you know just a huge, you know, days, weeks, whatever, months long party in honor of the pharaoh reaching 30 years, and then they would repeat that like every three years or something. So, he mm-hmm. ends up having like, you know, 15 or whatever the number is of these Sed <laughs> festivals. And like second most is like two for anybody yeah. else who had made it to like 33 years. And that's crazy. Just all the different wives, his preferred, his, his kind of primary wife was a woman called Nefertari who actually died fairly young. Of course, relative, he's, he's living to 90. So her dying in her, you know, late twenties or her thirties even is, you know, he's has to spend a lot of time without her. And I think it was, you know, still kind of always not pining, but like always kind of fondly remembering that first wife right. and the building projects, like his, Temples to him are everywhere. The, you know, building a giant monument and statues into the side of a mountain, and just the idea there is just that I am so great and so important that even the mountains are monuments that the gods made to me. Right. And just actually kind of believing that, and that everyone else you rule believes that, and yeah. is okay with it because you're actually a really good leader. He was just super yeah. competent. He was just kind of everything you would want in a leader. I mean, obviously, there's probably a little bit of megalomania going on, but it wasn't like he was cruel or ruthless or anything. There's no stories like that. So there's actually not a lot right. of scandal with Ramses. So it's almost right. like he's kind of yeah. boring on paper, but almost because he was so good at what he was supposed to do and filling his role. I, mean, I hate to use the word perfect talking about any person, but just like he was exactly what he needed to be. There's no, again, I guess who would write about the scandals? I guess you could argue. But, uh, but, but there are stories about, yeah. other, there are stories about others. The one little thing I guess you could call a bit of a, oh, not a scandal, but maybe a little bit of a cheat is there is actually some recent evidence that all these building projects he's taking credit for. Yeah, he might have literally like scratched out his dad's name and put his name on top. Well, I I had heard that other pharaohs were doing that to his stuff, though, too. Well, right, right. It's it's like one of the reasons that like the next however many pharaohs all call themselves Ramses is because they wanted to, well, number one, be associated with that rule. But then also it made it easier to like, oh, yes, that this thing says Ramses on it. Just like that's that's mine now. Like that was that was actually to me. Right. Absolutely correct. You can see like a Ramses the seventh is almost trying to pretend all this stuff from Ramses the second's time was actually his and he right. and it's, it's, it's part yeah. of his uh legacy and if it's hundreds of years later like there's no one around who, from the time who can be like no actually i'm pretty sure that was right like 
it's a lot easier back then to be like, no, that's that's mine. That's my temple. Yep, yep. So there's definitely, yeah, definitely a lot of that. And again, with all the different wives he had, again, the estimates are about 150 kids. Which is crazy. <laughs> and just how he was so many things. So he does, you know, we talk about the different hats, and you wouldn't think, oh, Pharaoh, all these hats. But he does go from warrior prince in battle with his father to obviously then warrior pharaoh winning these battles and creating peace treaties to father of all of humanity with the 150 kids he has and then lives to 90 years old where he was just kind of you know could hardly move in arthritic but you could just totally see how his people legit thought he was a god it's yeah it's almost not fair to use the no you know the one hat argument for him because at the time that was like all of the hats that there were <laughs> like all the hats that you would that's a hundred percent of the hats like something like Winston Churchill yeah that's a lot of different hats but there's also more hats around to wear <laughs> and Egyptian headdresses were kind of some of the coolest hats in history <laughs> yeah made out of gold <laughs> yeah and uh yeah so I just kind of wrote here in my notes that yeah he just kind of disappears into the role of pharaoh He's he's no real intrigue, just greatness. And and of course his mummy is still around. You can go and see Grandpa in in Cairo yeah. in the museum. His his you uh, see him. Yeah, and, and of course his dad too. So it even goes back farther than that. I guess we're all descended right. from Ramses. We're all descended from Seti. But uh, Ramses was just kind of again the pinnacle of Egyptian pharaohdom. The one last thing, kind of worth mentioning here, is there was a, a famous poem. I forget off the top of my head. It might have, I think it was maybe Percy Shelley, but. Uh, some 19th century British guy wrote a poem called Ozymandias, and he's actually oh, refer yeah. he's actually referring to uh, Ramses II, and it's it's kind of a neat little haunting poem thing. So is it Ozymandias like the Greek name for Ramses? Yeah, that, so it's, yeah, so it's correct. all kind of yeah. I forget the exact exact connection there, but yeah, it is is kind of it is a, a definite kind of thing there too, where the poem is talking about finding an an inscription from Ramses talking about actually. That is worth pulling up that quote here because I, I, it's it's kind of badass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had known of the poem beforehand, but uh, in the movie The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, in the the story where it's Liam Neeson and then the kid with no arms and no legs, yeah, and he's just like reciting famous stuff. One of the things that he recites is Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Oh dang! Okay, yeah. I, I that's cool. I, I kind of missed that. That's awesome. So yeah, basically the poem talks about seeing this inscription that says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. With the sentiment being, no matter how great you are, you'll never be as great as me. But then the irony in the poem is the idea that this was found in ruins and dusty and kind of blown over. So the idea that no matter how great any king has ever been, their legacy will ultimately always fall to dust. And that we kind of persevere. And yeah, I think I think Ramses II does kind of embody that. That he basically was at the highest height of anybody in all of human history. And now he's an old mummy and his legacy is yeah is still talked about. But, you know, it's just kind of, just kind of that just drab colored and things are forgotten. And no matter how great you were, humanity moves on. Right. Well, the, the last three lines of the poem are nothing beside remains round the decay of the colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand stretch far away right the sand wins earth wins yeah yeah yep. yeah so i mean that's i think and i know it's, it's kind of atypical i mean that's i mean i feel like 
Ramsey's kind of stands out in this way that he's just a harder one to kind of break down but I do think if you just try to put yourself in the shoes or sandals of Ramsey's the second it's just a very unique very interesting life and one of the most fascinating people in world history yeah so how does he match up though when it comes to Ramsey's versus Oshaka so I'll go first okay so going into this Having done the little, you know, the little bit of research that we did for Ramsey's before, and you know, going in depth on Oshaka, I would it was pretty close. It was really close. The whole thing with Oshaka being, you know, going from this super hardcore conquering emperor to pacifist, I just want to spread Buddhism to the rest of the world. That is really interesting. But also the transformation from, like you said, from warrior prince to warrior pharaoh to Basically, everyone in his kingdom sees him as a god, and he makes this huge impact on the rest of the world that we are still talking about thousands of years later is also super interesting. However, until we started talking, I hadn't decided, but uh, I think the fact that I'm, it's pretty likely that I'm related to Ramses II, <laughs> I think is going to give it the kicker. I think I'm, I am going to go Ramses II. Well, Ahsoka was long enough ago, you probably related to him, too. Well, yeah, but I, I think it's probably more likely, though, that because no, right, right. Ramsey's had, you know, over 100 children. No, right, right, probably, right, right, right. Uh... <laughs> What's funny is, though, too, so I actually kind of felt like, again, I kind of feel like I'm, no matter which side I want to vote, whenever, if I'm doing the bio, I want to sell that person, like, I want, you know, I want to give them, give them their full, their full due, but I always feel like I was cheating. Like, the whole time I'm talking about Ramses in a second, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to vote for Ashaka. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I was, like, cheating just to give a good argument. Like, obviously, I don't, I'm not saying I don't believe what I said about Ramses the second, but I also just feel like, yeah, there are other pharaohs, and there's maybe not enough there. So I actually, I'm, I'm voting Ahsoka. So... Oh, my goodness. Kind of kind of like last week, we are doing a little... Uh, we switch where you vote for the other person's person we're doing or whatever. A, yeah, we're doing a, the old Uno reverse card switcheroo yeah. on each other right now. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's do this. So yeah, vote by your vote by your person there. So again, for those who aren't super familiar, how we break a tie here, we just kind of give ourselves a hundred points to vote with per round. High vote wins. We only did that what three three times the first whole first round where we had uh, sixteen matchups. Uh, we do have eight matchups in this Sweet 16 here. We've done it once uh, last week. This is the fifth of eight matchups, and we've only done it the once. But I did spend 32 points to ensure Puyi moved past Winston Churchill. So Logan still all, has all 100 points available to bid. Uh, I am down to 68 points, and we'll have three matchups after this to kind of keep in mind as we're you know budgeting, so, so to speak, Jeez. here. So we are going to do this little typer and old number in. And we'll say we'll do a countdown and we'll see who wins. All right. Yeah, I, I already have mine in, so Okay. One, two, three. <laughs> so I did bid less than last time. Yeah. I bid seventeen, but Logan only bid ten. Right. Which will give the tie to Ahsoka the Great. And again And I think I think that goes to show how close we were though. Because true. true. Again, like I said, it was so close that the only thing that was like the kicker for me was that Ramsey's might oh, be right. a distant, distant ancestor of mine. Yeah. So yeah. like I'm completely, I wasn't that strong. And I, Ashoka is such a such an interesting guy. 
Well, yeah. So again, as, as, as much as I, you know, definitely a fan of Ramses the Great. I mean, I, I was the one that voted for him to move past Julius Caesar in, in the last round, right. much to your chagrin. But I think that as far as standing out as unique, even if Ramses is the best pharaoh and the greatest mm-hmm. pharaoh, he's one of lots of pharaohs. And obviously right. there are other emperors of India, even even Ashoka's grandpa, who kind of uh, abdicated for similar reasons as far as this, this turning over a new leaf thing. But I just really feel like Ashoka stands out yeah. as this complete 180 yeah. that we really don't see with anybody else that I can think of in history as far as their... I mean, Genghis Khan didn't all of a sudden become a monk and stop fighting. Like, right. that was yeah. Alexander the Great didn't do that. Napoleon didn't do that. Like, Napoleon does it to the bitter end where he gets exiled twice. And like, right. So Ashoka really, really does stand out for yeah. me as unique. Honestly, though, like, this section of the Ancient Ones bracket, Alexander the Great, Ashoka the Great, Julius Caesar, and Ramses the Second, any one of those guys could end up in the championship. Like Absolutely. the fact that they were Absolutely. all together. Yep, that they had to they had to go against each other is almost yeah. kind of unfair. Yeah. Well, and it just I mean it it shows like we in the, in the Julius Caesar versus Ramses the Second that got forced to a vote. Then Ramses the Second versus Ashoka the Great that got forced to a a vote. Like it's. It's so close. They're all so good. Right. And it's almost even like, I mean, I'm so torn, even as I'm like <laughs> voting to put Ashoka past Ramses the Great. I'm half hoping you'll beat me. Like, it's almost just like, it's so close. You really right. don't care which way, it, which way it goes. And that, yeah. yeah. So I do like the idea too. We've talked about, you know, that you kind of gain something from each person you defeat. So just doing that real quick. So Ashoka... I'm going to say has Alexander the Great's copy of the Iliad that he took okay. with him on his right. journey. And then from Ramsey's, from Ramsey's vein, shoot, he gets about anything he wants. A chariot. Let's go a chariot. There you go. And what did, what did Ramsey's take from Julius Caesar? Oh, that's true. Cause he would have that too. Uh, maybe a, a laurel, his little laurels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a shock of the great riding into the elite eight on Ramsey's chariots. With Julius Caesar's laurels and reading Alexander the Great's copy of the Iliad. (laughs) (laughs) And he will face in the next round. So again, so Cleopatra was the other person to advance out of the Ancient Ones region. We are are reshuffling into the Elite Eight. So Cleopatra is actually going to face Puyi. And Oshaka will face the winner of the Gandhi T.E. Lawrence matchup. So that'll that'll be fun when we get to that point. So, yes, again, I hope everyone is having as much fun listening to these little debates as we are uh, having them. Tune in next time, and we see the matchup between Genghis Khan and Henry VII. Hell yeah.